Hello! Wow. You're listening to The Dollop. This is a bi-weekly American history podcast. Each week, I read a story to my friend. Gareth Reynolds, who has no idea what the topic will be about. I, I blew it. It should be American history a story from American history. I just said a story. I could, so I could read you anything right now. I thought that's what this was going to be. I was excited to maybe hear something a little less. Would you like to hear Cinderella? I never knew how it finished. <laughs> You're going to about to find out. What happens? She gets a duck. What the fuck? Yeah. God, you want a little hit of dude? I'll do one bottle. <laughs> people say this is funny? Not Gary Guerra. Dave, okay. Someone or something is tickling people. Is it for fun? And this is not going to become the Tickling Podcast. Okay. You are <laughs> Queen Fakey of Made Up Town. All hail Queen Shit of Liesville. A bunch of religious virgins go to mingle. And do what? Pray. Hi, Gary. No. Nicely done, my friend. No. No. <laughs> Oh, shit. Um, this is it. This is the one people have been waiting for. I wish I could have spent more time on this, but uh, I wanted to do it before Marin started. Uh, the Iraq War. I Here mean, we go. I, needless to say, I don't I've need, got butterflies. I don't need to shout out the date that that all kicked off on. No, you can shout at the president <clears throat> who kicked it off. President George W. Bush told his crew to start planning for an invasion of Iraq just months after 9-11. I already am so pissed. <laughs> the man who began planning at the Pentagon was named Douglas Fife. He was the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy and ran a super double-secret office called the Office of Special Plan. The Office of Special Plan? Yep. It was, uh, it's kind of a stupid name. It's really a stupid name. It's a terrible name. The Office of Special, because it's just singular. It is singular. It should be Office of Special Planning. I mean, at least something, some action. Office of the Iraq Plan. or (laughs) The shh room. But this, this sounds like a, like a. I'm the vi- pre- vice president of shh. But this also, it's like happy chicken. It's like a... Right. You like happy chicken? Like yeah. it's, it's... Right. Yeah. Right. It should be... Uh, it, this special plan should be on an Asian menu. Yes. Yes. Fife was a big fan of a man named Ahmad Chalabi. Ahmad Chalabi was an Iraqi exile who ran a political organization called the Iraqi National Congress. Chalabi was a mathematician who had attended MIT and was hated at the State Department and the CIA. Interesting. Both considered Chalabi to be corrupt and very unpopular with Iraqis. But mm. neocons like Fife love Chalabi. He was the shit because he told them everything they wanted to hear, like that Iraq could be a secular democracy, that it would embrace the West and recognize Israel. We'd be greeted as liberators. Naturally, this was the Cheney Rumsfeld Fife dream leader of Iraq once Saddam was gone. Fife's office was very secret, double secret. Jesus Christ. Super double special secret. Get it secret. He did not coordinate with the State Department or the CIA. I mean, just even that, right? Like, how is that even possible? He really didn't like focusing on worst-case scenarios, and that's one of the things the State Department and CIA did. Yeah, that really is, right? That's yeah. basically what they do. That's their job! Yeah. <laughs> Total negative Nancys, yeah. those groups. Yeah, really. If you talked about the negatives, then people might not want to invade Iraq, and right. we couldn't have that, could right. we? No, no, no. Fife's office looked at the war as one of... Uh, 
to be one of liberation, and he believed it would be really easy. Yeah. Super easy. The Iraqis wouldn't need much assistance after Saddam was gone and would quickly take over running the country. God, I just, I remember just hearing it all. Like yeah. All of, like, hearing all of this being yeah. said. And thinking, you're just thinking, like... That doesn't... That just doesn't seem... Right. But, or, then, but then it turned out but, to be. But then, yeah, it did. Yeah, history has judged it fondly. Two months before the invasion, Fife called Jay Garner, a retired lieutenant general. He asked Garner to run Iraq after the invasion and get things transitioned into Iraqi hands. Sure. Fife told Garner it would take around 90 days. That's just... I mean, it, it's like we're remodeling a kitchen. You can't do anything in 90 days. I, I mean, honestly. Like, you could redo your bathroom. <laughs> You couldn't even then. No, you could. This shit would come up, and the contractor would have to do you, fucking. You, you get could, the wrong pipes. You could, you could get a. You could go from in a ninety days bathroom to a nice bathroom in, in 90, ninety days. In ninety days. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I bet you my brother could do it in sixty. <laughs> Garner accepted the position, and his group was called the Office of Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistance, or O R H A. Garner set about trying to get things ready. But Fife did not give him any plans or reports. He did not get any of, the, any of these State Department plans or the analysis from the CIA. He didn't even get the unclassified report written by the military's own National Defense University based on a two-day workshop involving more than 70 scholars and experts. Ugh. He got nothing. When Garner asked Fife for some documents, Fife told them that nothing useful existed. Nah, there's nothing. <laughs> we should go in. The guy who needs to fucking do everything, you're like, nah, you don't need any paperwork. I don't need that. What do you need stuff for? Well, you're a real bookworm. Oh, I'm a reader. I like to read stuff. Just get in there and get your hands dirty. Get in there. Just say yes. Well, there's a yes stamp in there. Just use your yes stamp. Fife figured that with no reports, Garner would just end up talking to Chalabi. Which is what happened. No. Fife also never planned to have American experts ready to run Iraqi ministries. After the war, he figured Iraqi civil oh. servants would just jump in and run everything. I just can't. I mean, it. it is just the clusterfuck of all clusterfucks. Oh, and, dude. And, and You have no idea where this is going. Oh, God. It's, even you're going to have your fucking jaw on the floor when oh, I'm done. Oh, man. So Garner really didn't need that much or any information, according to Fife. But Garner got to work putting a team together and making plans. Two days before leaving for Iraq, Garner was called to Secretary of Defense of defense Rumfeld's office and Rumfeld questioned Garner why he had hired the people he had hired, especially the people from the state department quote. I'm just uncomfortable with these people said Rumsfeld. Ah, and Garner asked, well, who from the department of defense do you have that's qualified to do agriculture? And Rumfeld Rumsfeld just stared at him. How about education? Rumsfeld did not have an answer. Garner went down the list of people he needed. Banking? Rumsfeld finally said, look, I'm not going to argue with you on this one, but I'm going to get you other people. What? That is arguing. That <laughs> it's is, It's totally arguing with him. <laughs> Rumsfeld then blocked all senior State Department people Garner had hired. What the fuck? He said they were too bureaucratic. <laughs> the, <laughs> they must have been like, well, hello, pot. <laughs> The Pentagon wanted as few State Department people on the team as possible because anyone from the State Department understood worst-case scenario and would immediately red, raise red flags about the planning. Jesus Christ. On March 19th, 2003, the invasion of Iraq began. What a time. <clears throat> and went pretty fucking smooth. 
Yeah, aside shock and awe. Aside from all the dead people and the destruction. Yeah, so. well, no, but sh- when you're doing shock and awe, you're gonna have some dead people, girl. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's 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 the that's the shock part. That's and the awe. Yeah, and the awe. As in, Look, as in, you're like, oh wow, oh, well, why did we do that? <laughs> it wasn't much of a fight. The elite forces put up resistance, but when the fighting started, the regular army just put on their civilian clothes and went home. They had been told not to fight by dropped leaflets. The vast majority were not loyal to Saddam anyway, but loyal to their country. And they would, said they would just wait around for new orders after the U.S. took over. Okay. On April 9th, an army tank toppled a huge statue of Saddam. Yep. That was the big moment of the war. It was now over for the, in the Iraqis' eyes, right? Yeah, well, the statue came down. Yeah. That, this is, we're peaking right now, right? This yeah, is this when, is good. This times, is as baby. good as it got. This is as good this as it got. This is when you were watching it and you were like, well, shit, this actually did go pretty well. Yeah, it went okay. Shit. And then the looting started. God. They began at the Ministry of Industries headquarters. There were no U.S. troops guarding the ministries, so the looters went after the building like the Rube went after a fire truck. Oh, God. They tore it apart. Before the war, Baghdad was a hopping place. Shops stayed open until 10, restaurants till midnight. Nobody worried about driving home late at night. It was an incredibly safe city. Because Saddam would lock your shit up or cut off your hands for the smallest crime. It was like Vegas in the 60s. Yeah. Now the opposite was happening. Total chaos and no one in charge. When the looting began, the ORHA ministers watched it on television and assumed the military was on their way to protect the buildings. But it wasn't. No troops had been assigned to guard the ministries. And there was still no consideration to put troops there, even after the looting started. How was that possible? only ministry being protected by American troops was the Ministry of Oil. Ugh. (laughs) (laughs) It's so obviously obviously transparent. Like, it's so fantastically... How is it so transparent? It's so fantastic. like, Like, at least... At least... You know, we used to get you like this was the first time somebody just straight up looked you in the eyes and fucked you as a citizen. Like, yeah, it for you know, you're used to getting fucked minorly, yeah. but you normally just wake up and your butt would hurt. Yeah, now you're literally no, a guy looking you in the eyes, the eye contact yeah. while I'm fucking you. Yeah, I'm fucking you right now, and and just shouting it. Yeah, I'm fucking you. I'm fucking you. When asked about why the looting wasn't stopped, Rumsfeld said, "Freedom's untidy. Freedom." Freedom is, he, dude, he's, I mean, he's obviously Satan's penis, but he is, he is no, great you, with you, that stuff. You, you, you could put that in as a phrase that a Marvel villain would say. He, he's, and he's got tons, have you ever seen The Fog of War? Oh, yeah. He's got great. tons of them. Yeah. He's got so many where you're just like, <laughs> oh, I'm glad this happened. The streets became a free-for-all by the time it was over. A freedom-for-all. The, oh. A-O-R-H-A believed the looting had caused more damage to Iraq's infrastructure than the entire bombing campaign. O-R-H-A contractors got their ministries and quickly realized how fucked they were. One man running the Ministry of Health named Carney only had two people as his staff. There were over 100,000 employees at the ministry, and he didn't have a budget. Wait, he, he... How, he had a hundred thousand people on his. He set. was brought in. He was brought in to take over the Ministry of Health. Uh huh. There were a hundred thousand employees. Uh huh. And it's just him. Oh my god. <laughs> Garner set about putting together a plan for how much power to give the Iraqis and when he would hand them back 
the power of their country. Meanwhile, the Pentagon, the State Department, and the White House had not agreed to anything. Cheney and Rumsfeld wanted Chalabi to take over, obviously, and Bush and Rice didn't know what they wanted, which is great. When Garner arrived in Iraq, he thought elections should be held within 90 days, as he was told, and he told the press that. Then Rumsfeld and Fife flipped out and were pissed off at him because they thought an election wouldn't leave Chalabi in charge. And the White House was also upset, so they fired Garner. Ugh. And Good. Get him out. They decided to hire what is called a take-charge kind of fella. Wait, no. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. No one, this is the guy no one knows about. Okay. Or people don't talk about. Bush, Shandy, Rumsfeld, and Rice had a meeting and tossed out different names. Rudy Giuliani? But he had just opened up a consulting firm. They went over former governors and ex-senators, but they couldn't agree. And then Cheney suggested Paul Bremer. Ugh. And that was that. He was a company man, Republican with lots of experience. He worked for Kissinger. You know, all the good shit. Yeah, yeah. Good track record. He was a rich kid who went to Yale and then got a degree in business from Harvard and then went to get another degree in Paris. He joined the Foreign Service. I just got a degree in Paris for whatever. He worked in the State Department, was stationed in Norway and in Kabul, Afghanistan, but he spent a lot of time in the U.S. at the State Department. He was moving up the ranks. Reagan then appointed him ambassador to the Netherlands. Oh, a, a really valuable position. Guess what he didn't speak? Uh, Dutch. Yep. Yeah. He then quit the government and worked for Kissinger's consulting firm. He received a shitload of awards for his work in the government and was successful in the business world. At the time of the 9-11 attacks, he worked for a business with 1,700 other employees in the North Tower of the World Trade Center above where the second plane hit. So, ORHA was done. Bremer would be the new head of an organization called the Co Coalition Provisional Authority, the CPA. Coalition Provisional Authority, okay. Garner hadn't even been in charge in Iraq for a month, and, uh, and now he was no longer in charge. He had no reports, no information, no money, and all the buildings he needed to run. The country had been ripped apart, so he was considered a failure. That's so true, right? <laughs> yeah. But you really fucked this one up. No, uh, I don't you think... guys... Please? Yeah, no, you really did a shitty job. Well, in my defense... What's happening everywhere? Okay, well, that you should have fixed that. No, the um, Bremer hit the ground running. He'd meet at eight with his staff every day. People were told to make their points in thirty seconds or less, and he'd make a decision just as quickly. Uh, that, that's my friend, more like a game show. That is, <laughs> that is not how, a political. That is ideology. how you rebuild a country. No, thirty seconds or less. <laughs> Welcome back to 30 Seconds or Less. Today we're going to try to rebuild Iraq through ideas that are pitched in under 30 seconds. And then Paul Bremer has 30 seconds to decide if he wants to enact that or not. 30 seconds or less, your time starts now. Well, my I want to rebuild the bridge. We need to get, uh, we need to get a, a consulting firm to come in and, and rebuild the bridge. And what we need is uh, we need security seconds. around the bridge. And, uh, and we're also going to need... seconds. Uh, we're we're going to need uh, uh, like, a, like a, a new kind of... Uh, uh, fuck! Um, no. God damn it! Bridge. It's a really important bridge! Shh. Sorry. Your 30 seconds is up. I'm, I'm sorry, sir. I'm over 30. 30 Seconds or Less is brought to you by uh, Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein, he used to be the glue that nobody respected. In May 2003, Bremer sent Rumsfeld a report made by RAND, a U.S. military think tank and military contractor. 
It said that 500,000 troops were needed to stabilize Iraq. That was three times more than we're currently in Iraq, and Rumsfeld just ignored it. So uh, that is, That's the problem, right? Is that it's just like... It's not... The problem wasn't the not knowing of the facts. The oh, problem no. problem was not the, wanting to deal with the facts. It's, no, it's not even that. It's worse than, it's worse than not knowing... It's willful ignorance. Right, right. It's, yes. it's willfully right. Totally. trying to put what you believe the world to be on something that is not going to be that. Totally. Yeah. It's like staring at water and going, you're wood! <laughs> oh, man. Now, Bremer had a plan. Uh-huh. It was a three-part plan. Uh-huh. First, he wanted to restore electricity, water, and other basic services. Jesus, yes. Makes sense. Yes. Next, he wanted to, quote, put liquidity in the hand of the people. Mm. So he's talking about reopening banks, offering loans, paying salaries, etc. The third part of his awesome plan was to, quote, corporatize and privatize state-owned enterprises. Now, which one of those? Okay. He wanted to get people away from the idea that the state should support everything. It was time for Iraq to experience the awesomeness of a free market economy. In a country where huge amounts of people have been living off the government for their entire lives. No part of his three-part plan did it say make things secure. Right. So, another thing Bremer did was to end the horrible bureaucracy that he had to deal with. Okay. Sending ideas and reports to the State Department and the Pentagon and the CIA and the NSC, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, well, it's supposed to be easy to rebuild the nation. He said, quote, he didn't want to deal with the Washington squirrel cage. Sorry, pal. (laughs) Tough shit. He didn't want to wait around for approval. He wanted to get shit done. So the White House said, go for it, dog. Oh, God. You are the man. Now he only needed to go to the White House for really big things and everything else he could make a decision on his own. This is how you rebuild a country. How is it? Uh, if, you, if you're George W. Bush. He's fucking lazy. But how? How, how is how is it? Is it because it always baffles me because I'm like, he's for sure dumb and he's like not good with English. But he's also not like people made it sound like he's like handicapped. Like he's. Definitely no. I don't think he's handicapped. Capable of understanding reality. No, I think he doesn't give a shit. So he's just that. Like he's he's. It's just it's so hard because I look. I like I told you. I used to go walk, run up these stairs in Hollywood, and what I used to picture on the ones that would get hard is I pictured George W. Bush at the top of the <laughs> stairs so I could beat the fuck out of him to motivate me to like keep going up the stairs. But so I I despise the man. But I also it, it, I'm always like baffled by what. He's in that fucking head. He doesn't give a shit. And it's just ambivalence. He's a fucking party boy. He doesn't care. God. He's never cared about anything. It, it's probably, I mean, yeah, I, it's just, it's shocking. It, it's still shocking. Anyway. So. He stole both elections. 11 days after he got to Iraq, Bremer dissolved, because now he can make whatever decision he wants. Sure. He dissolved the Army, Air Force, Navy, Ministry of Defense, and the Iraqi Intelligence Service. No biggie. It's no big deal. Just all of the... Aren't those... The military? Isn't that... Yeah. Yeah, the military. The military's a good one to start with. No biggie, right? Meanwhile, Powell thought Bremer was fucking nuts. And so he got uh, the few lower-level State uh, Department personnel who were working for the CPA to write memos to the State Department using their personal email, like Hotmail or Yahoo, so they couldn't be detected. Wow. (laughs) 
As far as staff, Bremer chose three Republican advisors who had been around a long time and had experience. The rest of the posts were filled with young Republican yes people. They were fawning parasites who never challenged anything Bremer said. For the vast majority, this was their first job working in government. And they all believe very strongly in building a democratic Iraq. Yeah. But. But what? Experience was needed. There was one man who had been working on Iraq for quite some time. Afghan born, now American, Al Khazilid. He was a White House envoy who had been spending months trying to smooth the coming political transition and put together an interim government. He said he had been speaking to exiled leaders and was very trusted. He was the man you'd want by your side if you were Bremer. Mm-hmm. So naturally, Bremer viewed him as a threat. Right. Good. Here was a guy who knew more than him about the situation Bremer was supposed to be running. That meant he might have other ideas that Bremer might not agree with, and Bremer was in charge. Did I mention he was in charge? Yeah. So that guy wasn't hired. Right. So Bremer came to Iraq after telling someone in Washington that he was going to, quote, make some bold decisions. Not what we're, it's not, a, you're not, you're not, he's again, making you're not bold renovating. Dec- yeah, he's making, you're not about, renovating. You know what Iraq needs? No. Just some fucking straight up hard decision making. No. Oh my That's God. what it needs, hard Hard to say. You know what people need. are doing? Guys got to come in and go, yes, no, yes, no. How is there not a show yet where people go and do makeovers at homes in Iraq? <laughs> like Iraqi home makeover? How is that not? A, like, we've completely ruined the country. And normally what we do to at least our coping mechanism is to feel like we're helping a few. Oh, How is that not... <laughs> That's so great. That's not a show yet. It's so great. <laughs> All right, Kaleeps. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to change your entire home. Well, I, 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 I'd have been changed. It's uh, just a uh, rubber. It, uh, it's just a pile. Okay, talk to me. Don't look at the camera. It's pile. Okay, I told you his. My brother. Okay. Um. Well, first of all, you're going to get a whole new kitchen. Well, my brother. Do you like marine tiles? I don't know. We'll go with small tiles. It'll take a while. And these cabinets here, these are so old. I mean, we're going to rip down those, and we're going to give you some cutting-edge designs. Yeah, they're down. They're on the ground. They're rough. Exactly. And cabinets should be hung up. So we're going to bring in some people to do that. And we have some great ideas for the living room. What? Flat screen, anyone? My brother is sleep bum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's you know, maybe we don't need you on camera for this one. Just maybe we just redo the house. He's really negative. I guess his brother, his brother was killed out here, <laughs> and he's just crying a lot. Um, Next up on a Rocky Makeover. <laughs> <laughs> so Bremer, uh, so right. So he says he's going to make some bold decisions. He did when he got to Iraq in his first meeting. He said they should shoot looters. <laughs> he was somehow talked out of this great idea. Well, I, uh, <laughs> I think I'm just going to say that the catchphrase I'll have is how. <laughs> then someone mentioned debathification, which was the purging, shower, which was purging senior members of Saddam's bath party from the government. Bremer was so for it. The CIA and State Department were super not for it. They wanted what was called de-Saddamification, getting rid of those who were very top commanders and those who had committed crimes. So... Bush met with the CIA, the state, and Pentagon, and everyone argued. And in the end, the NSC came up with a compromise. 
the top 1% of Bathus would be purged, and then the rest of the party would have to go through a truth and re- reconciliation pro- process, basically vetting them, okay? Okay. Bush was down with it. So that was that. Sorry. So the plan is to, to get- take the top 1% of Bathists. Right, the, the really bad like, guys. Right, and use them. No, get rid of them. They're get just rid gone. of them. Okay. And then the rest of them, you vet them and make sure the that they them, weren't... Right. The rest of them, you put through like some sort of Scientology class where they hold the rod and, you That's know... That's right. Yeah, okay. Uh, the cool thing was that the NSC had no idea how the bath party was structured or how many people were on each level or what each level meant or anything. They could have looked up this information on the internet or read papers about the party. All of this information was easily available to anyone particularly those people who had just invaded and needed that but, information, but, but nobody read it. But how? They, how, how? Like, how do you... How? It just takes time. How, how, how do you I, not, My daughter has a recital. How, how do you not just by discussion of this can I tell you, Can I tell you something? When this was going on, I looked it up and read about it. And, and you had a good feeling. <laughs> just so they went blind into the decision. So here's how the bath party was structured. There were four top levels of the bath party. Below that were just regular members and cadets. The top four levels were the concern, right? Uh-huh. But Bush had made his decision and they were basically going to be vetted. Okay? okay. Nope. Fife put to get, got together with Chilabi and they came up with their own debathification plan. So what? So somebody's Somebody's out bad planning W. Well, the, the, the president has made his decision, but then this other guy, like, the nah, Department of Defense decided me to... Me and Chalabi <laughs> actually spitballed a little. And, uh, nah, we don't need to do all that stuff. Chalabi's got us. In theirs, all four levels of the bath party and group members known as the Udu Furka would be purged. Bremer met with Fife, and because this was one of those great 30-second ideas, he jumped on it. Bremer had said he wanted to make bold decisions, and this was a fucking bold decision. And really fucking stupid. And fast. And it was not at all what the president signed off on. So, here's the thing you're learning right now. It wasn't that Bush was stupid. It was that he was stupid, and then dumber people did dumber things. But it's... it's, See, that's what's so hard, is like, it's not... It's not just dumb, it's just... It's just wrong. Like it's just like wrong. Like they, they're, like you're saying, like they're they're blissfully ig- like they're blissfully ignorant. That's right. They they are going in with the the everything they do. They look at the rosiest picture and they don't actually look at the evidence or the analysis or anything. They just make a decision based on what they want it to be. And then that and and the idea, the idea that you that that can carry. Like when it was going on, you were like, I honestly, I remember saying to a friend of mine, like. They just, they must know what they're doing. Just because it seemed so ludicrous yeah, no that you're done. almost like, they must have it. It's not even as ludicrous. You, you don't even know how ludicrous it is But yet. the idea that I was like, like I was right. You're, Some you're, shithead on a couch smoking you're, weed. You're not right. You're, it's so much worse than you ever imagined. Okay. So Fife just printed up one and a half page executive order of his plan and including banning members of, regular members of the Bath Party from having top level jobs in government. He showed it to Rumsfeld, but not, Powell or Rice or Bush and Rumsfeld was like, fucking cool, man. Send love that it. shit out. Really love it. When Garner read the report, he almost shit himself. 
He thought it was the dumbest and craziest thing he'd ever read. He ran into Bremer's office and said, this is too harsh. Let's get Rumsfeld on the phone and see if we can soften it. And Bremer looked at him and said, absolutely not. We are going to issue this today. Garner pleaded, you're going to drive 50,000 Bathys underground before nightfall. Don't do this. The CIA station chief in Baghdad said, in six months, you'll regret this. Bremer didn't give a shit. Debathification of Iraqi society, or as it can now be called, the creation of the insurgency in the biggest post-World War II fuck-up in American history, was read by Why Bremer... Why that one? ...was read by Bremer to his CPA staff that night. One guy, some total fucking asshole loudmouth, right? Sort of fella... His name is Steve Browning. He opens his fucking yap hole, and he said... The Bathists are the brains of the government, the ones with a lot of information and knowledge and understanding of how everything works. If they're purged, the CPA will have a huge problem running anything. But what did Browning know? He was only in charge of running five ministries at that time. (laughs) Bremer said the order is not open for discussion. Look, the 30 seconds are up, bro. Sorry, bro. 30 You're seconds not going to the lightning round. Another staffer asked Bremer if he completely understood the impact his policy would have. As she continued on, she grew angrier and her face red as she spoke. And Bremer finally cut her off and said the decision was made and left. Fuck. That night, David Nummy, who was currently Nummy. working... Nummy. <laughs> Mr. Nummy. Who was currently working at the finance ministry, called Bremer's office and told the staffer, quote, if you want me to enforce this, I'm leaving on the next plane uh. out of the country because it's ill-advised and you have no idea how far back it's going to set us. If those people disappear and we don't have the tools to find the next generation, Bremer did it anyway. Nummy was gone within a month. The purge was on. The order went public. That was 700,000 government workers who were used to being in power, who were turned against the U.S. occupation overnight. The next day, at the health ministry, eight of the top 12 jobs were vacant. One-third of the entire staff of the ministry was gone. Oh, my God. And now at the ministries, Americans were spending all their time investigating who was and who wasn't a Bath Party member to finish the purge. They poured over records and fired more Iraqis instead of doing things like starting factories up and getting workers paid and making the country secure. Yeah. Fife and Bremer had managed to turn everyone into a guy shuffling through paperwork. Oh, and they were purging innocent people. The Bath Party wasn't like the Democratic Party in the U.S. You couldn't turn down a promotion in the Bath Party under Saddam or you would be sentenced to years in prison. So these guys had to be Bath Party members. Right. So that it's a... How, wh- like what are the, what do you do when you purge? What like how do what is that's it? They're gone. They're just done. They can, they can never get a job in government again. Okay. So they're like, go work at a gas station. There's no gas. Just go. It's funny because when it was going on, that people were always like, man, we shouldn't be build like one. You know, Democrats would be like, you shouldn't be building roads and bridges there. You should be building roads and bridges here. But it turns out we were building roads and bridges nowhere. Right. And just up, nobody's nobody's doing shit. We basically like Americanized. We did do. We did spread America to Iraq. We did. It's just nobody knew that America spoiled milk. I would say Iraq is American about eighty years. Yeah. Um, so you get put in prison. Um, the promotion in in the Bath Party got you a monthly raise of twenty five bucks if you beca- if you became a Furka. So a lot of people just took it to get an extra twenty five bucks a month. It's quite a bump. Uh, some of them were former soldiers. They really didn't give a fuck about Saddam. They just wanted a job and extra cash. Because of the purge, 15,000 teachers were fired. Oh, my God. <laughs> what, what is... What is... 
<sighs> well, this well, is what happens ha, when you ha, don't. Ha. This is what happens when you don't read. <laughs> it really, it, it really is. It is a makeover show, but they just don't. We just don't have the contractor or the plan to rebuild. No, but yeah, we're the just guy, knocking down yeah, everything. Yeah, the, the guy to knock it down. And then we're like, oh, we forgot to get a guy to build the shit. Under Saddam, the Ministry of Education had told all teachers to join the bath party, and they were then made furkas. In Sunni areas, <laughs> entire schools now had just like two teachers. Bremer realized this was actually not good instead of a commission to hear appeals from teachers. Okay. Uh huh. And he put Chalabi in charge of the commission. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Who made sure the appeals weren't heard. Right. Okay, good. Brewer was cool because he considered the debathification to be, quote, the single most important thing we've done here. Oh, my God. So a shitload of people are out of work. And then two days after the purge order, Bush decided to disband the Republican Guard. They were the elite forces believed to be loyal to Saddam. The regular army guys could stay, though. Right, so they still the army is still mm-hmm. intact. They didn't even fight during the invasion. But where were they? Mm-hmm. Every military base was empty. Not oh. one Iraqi military unit was intact. Apparently, their leaders had been asking since the invasion ended what the army should do, but no, not one American answered. For some reason, the Pentagon assumed the soldiers would just stay in their barracks and wait until they were told what to do. Instead, they went home to their families because, you know, there's a, uh, yeah. you know what a war is? Yeah. Oh, do we? So they all, they did what Americans wanted. They took off their uniforms and they went home to, and they went to their families. And then they were like, fuck, I guess I'll just live at home now. Uh, so instead of, instead of sitting around with no food or supplies in hot barracks with no electricity, the U.S. also sort of forgot to tell them that they should stay at the barracks. So now the bases were all empty and looted. And Fife looked at the situation and decided the regular army shouldn't be called back. And Bremer agreed. So instead of vetting and assessing all the soldiers and figuring out which ones to bring back, they were just tossed aside, even though they had all been waiting around for orders, thinking they were still part of the army. So they didn't fight. They stood aside. They let an army invade, and then they lost their ability to support their family. So that's another 300,000 men tossed to the street. So that's a million. <laughs> right now, that's a million, if you're counting. And, and, and those, are, uh, those are the million that were like, this will help. <laughs> and, <laughs> let alone the ones that are just already fucked. Even worse, the Iraqi army was considered the glue of Iraq. It helped to hold together all the desperate ethnic and religious groups by stressing national identity. Yeah. And it was gone. This was... A great move also because unemployment was at 40%. Lieutenant General David McKiernan. 40%. Said of the order, quote, there are a large number of Iraqi soldiers now unemployed. This is a huge concern. How you doing? Uh, It's just, you just, it's like a choose your own adventure, but somebody else is choosing the adventure and they're always picking the bad adventure. <laughs> no, don't go. Okay. Like everything. Like every bad, every, every wrong decision is somebody's like, yeah. I'm on board. Every single wrong decision they could have possibly made. The soldiers protested by the thousands. all that, like, I mean, like, to me, it always felt more like the damage was just, we blew everything up and that just sort of fucked the country up and that you know that's why all the civil war because the army just sort of couldn't handle it and didn't want but the idea that 
there were ways that it maybe could have actually been okay. When I finished this research, I realized that it actually could have been okay. Yeah. Soldiers protested by the thousands. They had lost their jobs, their pensions, their source of pride. They just wanted their jobs back. But apparently firing guys who took their guns home was the call to make. <sighs> During one protest, two Iraqi officers were shot by U.S. troops with which further infuriated all of the laid-off soldiers. Bremer was slow to react, and when a new army was finally created, the old soldiers weren't given preference, and they only made an army of 40,000. Months later, a reporter saw one of the protesters, and he asked, what happened to everyone there? Did they join the new army? And the soldier laughed. They're all insurgents now. 72 hours after the decision was made... So we just turned the army into... Uh, we just made the army turn against us. Yeah. Right. Seven, I don't want to say us anymore. 72 hours after the uh, army was let go, the first major attack from the airport road took place. One furious U.S. general said, You guys blindsided CENTCOM. We snatched defeat from the jaws of victory and created an insurgency. Another said, We made hundreds of thousands of people very angry at us, and they happen to be the people in the country best acquainted with the use of firearms. Also, the insurgency meant people had a job again. Something to do. The insurgents offered unemployed ex-soldiers or ex-Bathists up to $100 to shoot Americans or plant landmines. I mean, that's crazy. If they filmed the killing of an American, they uh, got a bonus. Bremer uh, uh. <laughs> then met with the leading exiles and told them he had decided there would be no interim government. The U.S. would continue to occupy, and he was the viceroy and totally in charge. Oh, my God. He just anointed himself king. The Iraqis weren't pleased. He then put together a council of 25 Iraqis who would just advise him and write a new constitution. But Bremer would have the final decision on everything. Meanwhile, he ignored a guy named Grand Ayatollah al-Sistani, who was the big dog when it came to Islamic law in the country. After it became obvious he shouldn't ignore the Ayatollah, Bremer finally sent a man to meet with Sistani. Okay. Who did he send to meet with the most powerful religious man in Iraq? No. no. Was it a diplomat? No. Someone with experience with rebels? No. A urologist. What? Wait. <laughs> Why? <laughs> what? He was an Iraqi American who lived in Florida. He had been recruited by the U.S. to well, help. But letting anyone from Florida do this is a red flag <laughs> to begin with. He was recruited by the U.S. to help with reconstruction. He was not a diplomat. He was not a politician. He, he was a urologist. I'm sorry. What am I missing? He speaks the language. That's the only reason he sent him to talk to him. No. He's a urologist. No. He, he sent... It's like sending a fucking gynecologist to talk to the Pope. Like, you, <laughs> you're a fucking idiot. Although, I bet you the Pope would really start asking some, like... Like, you'd be like, and what does it... Like what, if you could what describe the feeling in there inside. What would you describe the feeling? What would it be like? What does it look like? Draw a picture. Uh, but the urologist had invented and patented patented his own penile implant, so that's good. Uh, they sent a guy who has a patent for a penile implant. Yeah. <laughs> to talk to the leader of uh, of I the. Mean, uh, <sighs> so well, if, if Sistani needed to talk about a urinary urinary tract I don't health, think that was he was, was going to be allowed. So that didn't go well. Why? And the CPA quickly learned that the pee doctor might not be the guy to meet with the Ayatollah. What was the Ayatollah just like, what is going what's, on? What's happening? What's, what's going on? What is this? 
I don't understand. Who are you? Uh, and then the he CPA... He just starts talking about the penis implant, like, eventually he's just vamping. Let me show you something that I want to get into all your people in your Listen, country. It didn't go well. I tried to sell him a couple penile implants, and he was livid. What? I tried to sell him two of my penile implants, and what? he did not take it well. No, he's the Ayatollah. I understand, and he did not like the demonstration. I have one. I showed him a little bit, and one of the men really threw me on the ground hard. Oh, God. I know. That's what I'm like. I said, oh, God. Allah. The CPA then looked into the doctor's background, and they found out he'd exaggerated his connections to the Bush administration. They did how, that. They how, did that after they sent him to meet with the Ayatollah. They can, did that after. How can lying on your resume at this level work? Like, if you're trying to get a job at like Forever Twenty One, <laughs> yeah, you can beef up the fucking res a little bit. But how the fuck are you like? Wait, oh shit, he really pulled one over on us. <sighs> so Bremer replaced the urologist. A new man would would meet with the Ayatollah. A stool doctor. Someone with more experience. Uh, you're, right? Whatever you're about to say is not going to be good. A pharmaceutical executive from Michigan. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> is, it, is the idea that you just literally can't send anybody who's not just kind of corrupt? Like, you, you're like, okay, well, look, maybe we'd, we got to leave government now. Who do we go yeah, with? Yeah, but if you're a pharmaceutical executive from Michigan and they go, hey, we want you to go with, meet with the Aitola, you should say, I don't think that's what I should be doing. Oh, my God. Nobody... Dude, it's totally like winning a trip. For him, it, it's like, yeah, it is like he won a vacation. The Ayatollah was not impressed. He then issued a fatwa. You know who we should have sent next? Carrot Top. Let's just get weird. <laughs> people who are just so... You send me Gallagher? Yeah, how did it go? I'm covered in melon. I don't know what your country is doing. I am covered in melon. Okay, you know what we're going to send you. Do you know what the Coney Island hot dog eating contest is? There's a guy no. who won last year. No. I'm going to send him over. Oh, wait, Joey Chestnut? Yeah, we Joey Chestnut. We love him, actually. Yeah, send him. <laughs> I watch him every year on ESPN. <laughs> uh, didn't, you, didn't you do a bit about how the we should, send, we should send that to, like, Ethiopia or something? Oh, yeah, I don't know. I think I tried that a couple of times. Yeah, my idea is that we should hold the um, Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest in, in um, the Sudan, yeah. and they should do it live there. <laughs> and then and the and so they should they should do it at a camp. And then after it's over, I would assume the guy as he's shoving the hot dogs into his mouth and watching the crowd of starving people, I, I assume that his something would change in him. Uh huh. And then he would hopefully wade out into the crowd, and they would tear him apart and eat the hot dogs from his stomach. <laughs> and eat him? No, just tear him apart and then eat, take the hot dogs out because they're not digested yet. Right, okay. And take them like out of his snake swollen... Eggs. Yeah. Right, okay. So just remove the babies from the throat. Like, that to me would be a great new way to do the... Well, those, I mean, those aren't getting overly chewed, so there's definitely <laughs> hunks in there. Sistani issued a fatwa. It said that Iraq's constitution had to be uh, 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 written by elected representatives and the committee Bremer had picked was unacceptable. No one at the CPA decided to give a shit about the fatwa. They figured, and this is a quote from one of Bremer's aides, the view was, we'll just get someone to write another fatwa. Wait. I can't. Wait. Sorry. I had totally issued a fatwa. Saying that they had to hold elections to write a constitution and they wanted got, to just get a different guy to do a different fatwa. So they just, they're like a counter fatwad? Like a counter fatwa. They got counter fatwad? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. That's a first. Well, right? they think this is crossfire. Right. Okay. That's fair. 
but that kind of thinking will make more sense once you understand the hiring process of the CPA. Most CPA staffers were chosen because they had a well-connected Republican friend or were recruited by Bush himself. Not because they had experience in post-war situations. Never that, actually. James O'Bearn, a White House envoy, took over recruitment. He asked for resumes from the usual places you would go when trying to rebuild a country. Sure. Republican congressman staffs, conservative think tanks, Republican activists. Sure. Frederick Smith, deputy director of the CPA Washington office, said the criteria for sending people over there was that they had to have the right political credentials. O'Bearn was definitely the correct man for the job. He once pointed at an applicant's resume and said, this is the ideal candidate. Because he had worked was, for the Republican okay. Party in Florida during the contested protest- oh, presidential Christ. election of 2000. Oh, God. They asked questions that were very important to nation building, like if the interviewee supported Roe versus Wade. Oh, wow. Or if they voted for George W. Bush. Oh, my God. One CPA staffer sent an email to a friend describing the process. Quote, I watched resumes of immensely talented individuals who had sought out the CPA to help the country thrown in the trash because of their adherence to the president's vision for Iraq was uncertain. So, so anyone who was... Anybody who did Anybody who, who went in for an interview and said the truth, which is, I don't think Bush knows what he's doing over there. Yeah. He doesn't actually have a vision... Well, that's not blissfully ignorant, and that's, that's not what we're looking for. They would throw that away. Yeah. So anybody who had any sort of knowledge or smarts was immediately dismissed for telling well, the truth. What would you rather? Would you rather you know? Would you rather know about a problem, or would you rather just ignore it and never solve it? Yep. You don't have to solve a lot of problems if you don't believe them. <laughs> The email continued. I saw senior civil servants from agencies like Treasury, Energy, and Commerce denied positions that were instead handed to prominent Republican National Committee contributors. The good thing was that the recruitment process was very fast because they weren't looking at actual experience. Right. Good. It's easy to hire. At one point, Bremer's budget chief asked for 10 new young workers. He got a list. One was the daughter of a neoconservative commentator named Michael Leiden. One was a recent graduate from an evangelical university for homeschooled children. Oh, my fucking God. Another was an aide to Rick Santorum. All ten were hired. Oh, God. When they got there, they all found out something hilarious. They had all sent their resumes to the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank, and ended up getting hired to work in Iraq. Oh. So Six they, of them, they, they couldn't believe it. They were like, this is amazing. Oh, my God. Six of them were put in charge of Iraq's $13 billion budget. Oh, my God. They had zero management in the financial world. So they took just fucking college kids yeah. who had no experience doing anything yeah. and put them in charge of the budget yeah. of Iraq. Right. And it didn't go well, apparently. John Agresto was hired as senior advisor to the Ministry of Higher Education, a lifelong Republican and big supporter of the war. He got the call early on. He actually had experience in the field, surprisingly, and he was going to Iraq to completely redo the university system. He was going to get... He was going to get high-speed internet going in schools and open liberal art colleges. What? What? <laughs> Why? Get what? He's gonna get high speed internet in there. Up in that bitch. I mean, they're like, 
What? How do you like if you're an Iraqi? How do you're like okay, thank you, but listen to me, fuck face. My I don't have electricity. <laughs> I actually left a story out that I'm gonna do as a separate dollop. That's really amazing. Oh boy. Uh, now uh, he didn't know anything about Iraq's educational system, though. Cool. So going in. Uh, when he arrived in Iraq, he had not read one book about the country. Quote, I wanted to come here with as open as a mind as I could have. He said, that came out of his mouth. Good. A guy going to redo the education, the entire education system in Iraq said, I didn't want to read anything about Iraq. It sounds, it, almost it sounds, came out of his mouth. It almost sounds like we hired Jaden Smith. <laughs> I only want to read books about Iraq written by my sister. Uh, maybe you should have read a book or something because high-speed internet wasn't even remotely a possibility. Interesting. On the ground, what they needed was beyond obvious. After being in Baghdad for about a month, Bremer went to a school for a photo op. There he saw classrooms with no lights, no fans, no chalk, no blackboard, just empty rooms. Bremer promised the headmistress that engineers would visit soon to fix the school. Completely renovated, Bremer said. And then he told the boy he'd bring soccer balls. From the back of the crowd, a woman shouted, Please help us! We are very worried about security! There are people kidnapping our children! We are very scared, another woman yelled. Bremer said they're arresting people every day. In the back, a teacher yelled, Please, we just want to be paid! Bremer was then hustled into his SUV. Good luck, he yelled. Oh, my God. Thank God that guy's coming to put in the high-speed internet. How can you, how can you have, like, if, you, if you're in this country, how can you be like Michael Jackson at a trial? Like, just, like, hopping into it, like, answering two questions on the way to the car and then getting in. You just don't give a shit. Must be nice. When Arguesto hit the ground in Iraq, he found out he had no budget for his education reform. He thought he would have $25 million. He quickly learned that all the money had been given to American universities so they could establish partnerships with Iraqi universities. Each American university would decide how to use the money. What? It just Why are you looking at me where? Because it just doesn't... I don't understand. Well, what they did was all no, the money I, that was to set aside to rebuild Iraqi schools was given to U.S. schools to dig off with. What? What just doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> It does, because a bunch of Republican cunts it, it who does. are running schools it, it, yeah. just got a bunch of fucking money, and Iraq can go fuck itself. God, man. It's fine. Rumsfeld was always recommending people to work for the CPA. Okay. At one point, he sent Fyth a memo recommending a guy for a specific position. Rumsfeld said the guy had worked in banking and might speak Arabic. But later, Rumsfeld was told the CPA had not hired the man. He was pissed. Oh, boy. He sent a note. I would be curious to have someone check into that and explain to me what in the world is going on. I thought we needed people out there. Turns out the guy was 80 years old and oh. sort of didn't want to spend a moment of his final years in Iraq. Oh, and he had, quote, connections with shady bank dealings in the Middle East. Oh, my God. So Rumfeld wanted an 80-year-old corrupt asshole to work. Right. That's who will get it going. Now, some foresight did happen. Just not by the Pentagon or the White House or the CPA. Before the war, the Justice Department actually hired a guy who was perfect for the job. He had experience rebuilding police forces in conflict zones. His name was Richard Myers. Before, way before the invasion, he said they would need 5,000 law enforcement advisors to come and train the police. 
Of course, that idea was rejected. Of course. The Pentagon had just assumed the police would keep working after the invasion. Interesting. Like the army. But weird thing is, is they all fled when the invasion started. Sure. So no cops anywhere. At this point, experts said 7,000 police were needed immediately. The White House sent fewer. Like? A lot fewer. Like? 6,999 fewer. Uh, dude, what? They sent one person. Was it RoboCop? Bernie Carrick. Former New York police commissioner. Oh, that fucking asshole. <laughs> former military vet. Oh, God. Oversaw the NYPD during 9-11, and he would later go to jail for four years yeah. for eight counts, including criminal conspiracy. Ugh. As a bonus, Carrick had zero experience in a post-war zone, although the White House believed his total lack of experience was an asset. That's an amazing way to be. That's an amazing <laughs> thing to think. I mean, it really is like, you know, you, you do have... Total sensitivity towards like 9 11, obviously. It's like the craziest thing that's ever happened in this fucking country. Yeah. But the idea that just because a dude was working for the police when at that the time. happened. Right. It doesn't, it, it doesn't like make him. Patriotism. Patriotism doesn't give you experience. Like there's no. no. No, it's fucking mind boggling. And that's the same idea with the hiring Rudy Giuliani for that position before. Yes. It's like he yeah. was. He, he was there. Like they just gave. They, Rudy Giuliani. He just said sh- he was he just said very shit. compassionate. He said shit. He wasn't even that compassionate. Yeah, and he really wasn't. I mean, he was like fake compassionate, but that was like enough. Well, look, important things. Carrick was a Republican. Right. And he was a cop. Right. And he believed in what Bush was doing. Good. So he's the guy. Carrick agreed, but only wanted to stay for six months since he was now a partner in Rudy Giuliani's consulting oh, firm. Oh, God. And he was making 10000 a pop for speeches. Oh, God. I can't afford to be here, he said. That's the guy. That's the guy. The entire time at Iraq, Carrick held a total of two staff meetings. Oh, my God. One the week he arrived, and the other when a New York Times reporter was following him and doing a story on him. Now, at this time, they needed someone to assess the police and get them back to work. They needed a guy with vision who would get the funding needed and hire new police chiefs. But Bernie was a street cop. And in Iraq, in Baghdad, he found an exact mirror version of himself. Oh, dear. Ahmad Abraham, the, the, uh, the Iraqi Bernie Carrick. Oh, he was named the chief of investigations and deputy interior minister. Never mind that he had only met a mid-level cop before the war. This guy, there's something about this guy. So incompetent. People are hiring more incompetent people. Yeah. So a instead copy of, of a copy of a copy, instead of bringing in the seven thousand, it's like multiplicity. Foreign police officers needed to train people. They brought in one guy who didn't know what he was doing, and he hired a guy who didn't know what he was doing. Good, perfect. Bernie never seemed to understand where he was. He shared an office with the CPA's interior ministry, who often met with Iraqis. Bernie came into the office one day and saw Iraqis around talking to people. And loudly said, who the fuck are these people? Oh, Jesus. Though, uh, and someone said, oh, those are Iraqis. Well, what the fuck are they doing here? Oh, cool. Bernie, that's, the, their country. that's the reason we're here. It's their country. <laughs> They're everywhere. Bernie cut his six months. It's like jumping into the ocean and asking why all the fish are. What's with all these things? These things with the flippers? <laughs> Bernie cut his uh, six-month tour in half. After three months, he left Iraq. He didn't tell most of the people who worked for him that he was leaving. He was just gone one day. <laughs> wow. He ghosted them. He totally ghosted them. Wow. <laughs> awesome. 
<laughs> now that the CPA was getting people into positions, they needed to get things fixed and to get people working again. The CPA needed a, uh, 150 factories that were owned by the Ministry of Industry looked over to figure out which would work. Okay. They hired a man named Glenn Corliss to do the job. Corliss was one of the few who came with actual experience to a job that needed it. He'd worked on Wall Street and was known for bringing back companies from the brink. Okay. So he arrives. And here's the conversation that took place on that day. Right. CPA. Okay, uh, you have 150 factories. We want you to evaluate them. Corliss, where's my staff? Well, it's you. Okay, where's the management of the companies? Uh, we fired the management because of debathification. Where are the financials? There are no financials. How much time do I have? Two weeks. What? 150 factories. He has two no staff. Weeks? He has no money. He has to do it in two weeks. What? Uh, everything sounds like a reality show. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like a movie plot. He has two weeks. What is it? Two weeks, 150 yeah, country I mean, yeah, companies? Okay. So here's how the companies worked under Saddam. They were state-owned and made a bunch of shit that wasn't very good. Okay. Notebooks, batteries, all kinds of fucking crap. But a factory job was a government job, and you got a nice salary for the rest of your life. Okay. Many people employed at factories didn't even have anything to do. They just sat around, okay. employed. Sure. The salary was low, but the government took care of everything. Gasoline was almost free. Electricity was free. College was free. Healthcare was free. People got food every month from the government. So that's how they're living their life. Mm -hmm. So you had a whole society basically living off of the government. And it was the only thing they knew. They had been doing this for decades. So when Corliss told them their system was screwed up, they looked at him like he was insane. Yeah. Corliss quickly realized privatization was not happening. Yeah. If they sold out the factories, many people would lose their jobs, just increasing the already massive unemployment numbers. There wasn't even electricity or raw materials to work with. Many of the factories were worthless already. They should just be shut down. But Corliss recommended shutting them down and then continuing to pay the employees forever. Because you can't just get rid of, because there's so many unemployed and the factories don't actually make anything. Well, so he's like, people love so he's like, well, just fire them. Just, just get rid of the companies and just keep paying them. A, and hopefully they'll start their own businesses or something. Jesus Christ. If you're one of them, jackpot. Yeah. He, there just wasn't another solution in his eyes. And this yeah. is the guy who fucking does this. Yeah. The guy above Corliss who made the call and stuff like that was named Peter McPherson. He'd been the president of Michigan University, worked under Reagan in international development for seven years, was VP at Bank of America, and most importantly, he was buddies with Dick Cheney. Yeah, and he strongly believed that it was very important to shrink government employment, not increase it. The faster they could eliminate subsidies and get privatization going, the quicker shit would turn around. Well, but... He had... Only asked for 130 days leave from Michigan University, so he was thinking he could crank this shit out in four well, months. He's really, like, he's on board. <laughs> and McPherson believed strongly the way to cure all problem was to reduce taxes and privatize. Oh. I love, I lo okay. No, go ahead. I mean, I just love how we're like, yeah, Reaganomics. <laughs> That's what you guys need. We went into a country and said Reaganomics. Reaganomics. Uh, also, CPA lawyers said privatizing the factories would violate the Hague Convention. McPherson looked at the looting that had occurred as a as necessary shrinkage. Sure. 
It was like the natural natural selection, but for business. The good companies would now... I love how all the right-wingers <laughs> believe in survival of the fittest and, have, like, Darwin it's when it comes to this shit. With this shit. Yeah. This when is... It comes this to, is... When it comes to actual... <laughs> when it comes to us, it's like, ah, oh, it's preposterous. No, let them work itself out. That's how nature does it. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, God created us. Yeah, in a pot in the sky. So he thought the good companies would now flourish. He looked at everything that way. A lot of police cars had been stolen and turned into taxis. Good, he said. Privatization. Hey. That's privatization. Democracy in motion. Bus drivers are now driving their own routes and just pocketing the money and keeping the buses. Hey, privatization. Privatization. Yeah. So this stuff's all good. But there are a couple of big problems. Debt. Iraq's banks were one million in debt. So... McPherson just wiped out all the debts from government-run businesses. Okay. And anyone who knows anything about business knows that weak companies usually owe strong companies money. So now the factories that had actually been profitable suddenly had no money. Oh, good. And a bunch of companies that were shit had money or usually just goods that they had bought from the strong companies. Right. Like, one company now had a giant mountain of free cotton they could use to make clothing, but they were a shit company. Right, so they just made they shit. They just had free, right. they had free, they had free cotton. Right. So overnight, he destroyed every strong government-run company. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> it's so great. He it's was right, though. He will be out pretty fast. <laughs> this is good. His plan's going to be done real quick. McPherson then did what every Iraqi had been waiting for since the tanks rolled into Baghdad. Left? He cut the top tax rate from 45% to a flat tax of 15%. Okay. Boom. Right? Yeah. Uh, Most Iraqis didn't pay taxes. Now, we're six months into the occupation, and assaults on the green zone begin. Oh, all those released Iraqi soldiers and fire people finally found something to do. Suddenly, the people who worked for the CPA started to have an actual look around at what was going on, and they were forced to do this because bombs were coming over the walls of their sure. secure uh, zone. Well, I guess they didn't know about the green zone. It's, ba- it's like ghoul and tag. Can't tag me. I'm on ghoul. <laughs> ghoul. They realized this wasn't good, and it suddenly started to dawn on them that without security, they couldn't make liberal arts colleges or privatize the factories or get election going. Yeah, I mean, the ballerinas are going to be really affected right? by this. Yeah, for sure. But they were so far past fucked at this point that it's amazing. The entire CPA was in Iraq. The entire time the CPA was in Iraq, the CPA actually had no idea how many people worked for the CPA. Okay. I mean... Uh- <laughs> Like, I just, I'm starting to feel like I could do some of this shit. Yeah. And that's not good. No, it's very bad. This made it hard for them to ask for more people. One CPA administrator said, quote, we never had a good grip on how many people were in the CPA. Sometimes people just showed up in Baghdad, and sometimes people just left. What? (laughs) Hey, I'm working for you guys. Uh, Okay. I'm going to leave now. All right. It ended up taking six months to get CPA staff into all 18 Iraq provinces. And when they did get the staff there, the staff were so small, they were completely overwhelmed, running them almost pointless. They needed a lot more staff everywhere. In May 2003, the regional coordinator for South Iraq wrote, Our window for influencing the course of events in the South will be gone in two to three weeks. In two to three weeks, it was. 
<laughs> of course, despite reality being smashed into his face, Bremer continued to push for privatization. What? He thought it was, quote, essential for Iraq's economic recovery. But the factories at this point were a train wreck. Fayez Aziz ran a government vegetable oil company. He had fired a lot of men before, and they were demanding their jobs back. They were saying, quote, either you get us back to work or we're going to do something. One day, a former employee came into Aziz's office with a hand grenade and demanded his job back or he would blow them both up. Aziz managed to talk the man down. It didn't matter. Two days later, Aziz was pulled from his car and gunned down in the street by eight men. Now, this changed everything. Privatization suddenly looked like it would be more difficult than everyone thought. If they fired thousands of workers, what would happen? Fortunately, the dream of Bush and company was still alive. Tom Foley arrived two weeks after Aziz was killed. His job? To work on private sector development. He was an investment banker who had gone to Harvard with President Bush, and he had a bold plan. He wanted to privatize all of Iraq's state-owned businesses in 30 days. Uh, Again, reality show. What? (laughs) A contractor told him it couldn't be done because, for one reason, international law prevents the sale of assets by an occupational government. Foley responded, I don't care about any of that stuff. I don't give a shit about international law. I made a commitment to the president that I'd privatize Iraq's business. Wow. What a great attitude. Fuck you, everyone who's not W. Yeah, right? International law. International law. I don't give a fuck about international law. I don't give a fuck about international law. My bro invaded this place. I'm going to set shit straight. I don't give a fuck about international law. Iraq is being run by a fraternity at this point. Yeah, and and probably not the best fraternity on campus. No, not the academic one. No, certainly not that one. The one that, the one where like you're like, don't go there, you'll get roofied. Yeah, this yeah. is there. This the, it's being run by roofiers. Yeah, but Foley was forced to face facts after the killing with the state of the factories, the debt debacle. It became queer, clear, and quickly queer. that selling off the factories was a bad idea. Oh, and illegal. Right. He decided to lease them instead, which he was very sad about. Hmm. The only hitch was that any investor leasing a factory had to agree to not fire any employees. Uh, I mean, that now, is not going to go down well. Strangely, no one stepped forward to, buy, to lease a factory. One would think that without adequate electricity, an internet, terrible phone service, an airport that still wasn't open, and violence increasing by the day that companies would jump to lease a business. Yeah, let's go. Get out there. Get involved. Meet the people. But they didn't. Put your goods on display. Now, being a master of timing, Bremer then decided it was the moment to deal with all the food rations the Iraqis got from the government. Oh, good. Finally, let's start toying with that. Look, tons of people are out of work and joining the insurgency every day. What's the best thing to do right now? Get rid of their food. (laughs) So make it hard for them to eat. He decided the government shouldn't hand out food as had been happening for decades, but instead the government should give out debit cards and then private companies could distribute the food. So what he's doing is trying to figure out any way to privatize something. He wants something privatized. And is it just why the main reason being to privatize just because of the philosophy of it? Yes. Because you would think that there would be more. Well, yeah. there's there's one problem with the plan. No, there, the plan is the problem. Um, no one in Iraq used uh, credit cards or debit cards. I don't understand there, why. What? Like, why, what? Why this is a good you, idea. Why would you go there and be like, let's turn this place into the fifth element? <laughs> let's really have a little fun here. Like they're like they don't know what those are. Le- like, just you can't. 
I mean, what, what do you want? It'll work. You're not going there to make Yankee fans. It's going just to go work. there to like just fucking like let them have their shit. Give them food. Food. There were no ATMs. You've killed, you've killed. You've definitely killed someone they're related to, and you've definitely killed a friend of theirs. There are no ATMs. So then, what are they going to? And there wouldn't be for a long time because there wasn't uh, consistent electricity or phone service. So basically, they would be giving people a magic piece of plastic that trapped their money inside of it. I mean, that's what the government really is. So. <laughs> Bremer did not care about all the negative Nancys and their blah, blah, blah. He decided to move forward with the debit card plan. Good. Then the military heard about the idea and immediately killed it because they did not like the idea of food riots. Yeah. Well, I don't he was going to do it, well, well, even understand. though there was no infrastructure. What, what would be, what would, like... It would be like giving people... Are you just trying to make the biggest riot? It's like giving people, uh, like you give them all uh, a a thing to ride a water slide on. Right. Okay, everybody, here's the water slide cloth that you ride on. And everyone's like, there's no, there's no water slides. Use your cloth. Use your cloth, buddy. There's, there's what? no slide to, to, to ride it on. I mean, it really is so fucked up. Slowly, the country be, uh, began to completely destabilize. The Shiites and Baghdad slums started fighting U.S. forces. And not just a little bit. This is full-on fighting. All the while, but Bremer, at least they're getting along finally. Yep. Yeah. All the while, Bremer tried to put uh, together some sort of functioning government. This usually just led to more fighting. Good. While all this was going on, the insurgency in the Sunni-dominated west of the country increased because those were the people most affected by the debathification and the firing of workers. Good. For the first time ever, the country of Iraq was breaking off into different ethnic and religious groups. Previously, they had thought of themselves as Iraqis first. Now that was gone. Meanwhile, Bremer was having problems. He had formed the Iraq governing council to create a constitution. All the members of the governing council had supported the American invasion of Iraq. Good. Grand Ayatollah Sistani had said the constitution had to be drafted by elected politicians. Bremer did not want that because he wanted the new constitution to have the separation of church and state in it. Oh. Because he was fucking insane. Jesus Christ. So the U.S. now found itself in the rather awkward position of an Iraqi religious leader calling for democracy and the U.S. working to stop democracy. Wow. I mean, that says a lot. <laughs> By September 2003, the population was done with the occupation. Things were far worse than they had been under Saddam. They only got 12 hours of uh, power a day. Unemployment was rampant. Insurgent attacks were increasing constantly. It was a total fuck-up in their eyes. More and more believed the occupation was doing more harm than good, and they started joining up with the insurgents. Every time Bremer tried to delay an election or drop a constitution with the council, the Ayatollah would release a message and the whole thing would be fucked. The UN got involved. Bremer refused to meet with Sistani, saying Sistani was saying different stuff to different people. Well, what a pussy. I mean, <laughs> what a fucking pussy. Well, the way so if somebody bitchy. saying different stuff to different people is to go sit down with them yeah, and fucking so, talk to them. It's so bitchy. It's, such it's a, like high school. He's a little bitch. Bremer uh, just didn't think the country was ready for voting. By the time Bremer came around to meeting with the Ayatollah, the Ayatollah wouldn't see any Americans. So now the British were sending representatives to talk to Bremer about the Ayatollah's positions, but Bremer would not listen to them. Oh. The old stick in your finger in your ears move. In the West, shit was going south fast. In March 2004, four American contractors were ambushed and killed in Fallujah. Bush wanted revenge. And against recommendations from the military, because they said it would look like revenge, he decided to attack Fallujah. Ugh. 
which was largely held by insurgents now. These were soldiers and factory workers who had been let go by Bremer because they were Bathists. Right. So, the military attacked Fallujah. As warned, it didn't do great things to keep all smooth in the government. The Sunnis in the council demanded an end to it immediately. The military, who strangely believe that you shouldn't start something unless you plan on finishing it, were told to stop the attack. Interesting. They estimated they were two days, two days from taking the city. Now, some old Iraqi army generals were brought in to negotiate. Okay. They said they could bring in some old Iraqi Fallujah soldiers from the army to handle the situation and deal with the insurgents. Okay. The U.S. agreed. Strangely, it didn't go as planned. Interesting. The Iraqi soldiers did not go after the insurgents. They just set up checkpoints around town. They also refused to wear the new Iraqi uniforms given to them by the U.S. Instead, wore their old Iraqi uniforms. Oh, wow. Throwbacks. Then the checkpoints went away pretty quick. Okay. Then all the equipment that had been given to the Iraqi soldiers, Humvees, tons of weapons, to fight the Fallujah fight ended up in insurgents' hands. Good. Because... Good. Now they have tanks. They were insurgents the whole time. Right. So we brought in, we brought the, the we, we negotiated <laughs> we negotiated with the enemy right. and gave them guns but in to our stop themselves. In our defense, yes. we did get a pretty good deal out. <laughs> we kind of took them to the cleaners on that one. Imagine them negotiating like, "Hey, for fun, push back." Oh, Not good enough. Shit, they're really good. I mean, they obviously seem invested. Uh, okay, yeah, we'll do it. We like more humpies. Uh, okay, yeah, for and sure. more, many more guns. Sure, that'll okay. help. Yeah. <laughs> do you Perfect. know? Do you know we are the same guys? Mm. Nothing. Voice got super high there, so mm, it's okay. Uh. <laughs> I can see you. Okay. What? Back, back in Washington, the White House really, really, really wanted this thing with the Ayatollah worked out and fast because U.S. Pre- presidential elections were coming, and Bush needed good news. Bush needed, yeah. So he, I mean, what's great is he's already been on the aircraft carrier. He's already been on the uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Mission accomplished. Yep. Condoleezza Rice decided Bremer had to listen to the Ayatollah about how to do the election. The UN came back in and convinced the Ayatollah elections couldn't happen until December. But Bremer kept rejecting all of the Ayatollah's demands. The way the Ayatollah wanted things, it would lead to a religious democracy, which is how the people of Iraq wanted, but not Bremer and Cheney and Faith and company. Finally, Bremer was called to Washington, where it was hammered into his head that the U.S. presidential election was the most important thing. Bremer came back and agreed to hold elections in January 2005 for a parliament and government who would then put together a constitution. And this is exactly what the Ayatollah had wanted all along. The CPA then pushed for an election within a year, and then Iraq would be turned over by the U.S. They set it up so it would happen four months before the U.S. presidential election. Perfect. Because they wanted to do it fast to get Bush some sweet PR, the only way it could occur in such a time is is if the entire country was a single electoral district. Regardless of where an Iraqi lived, they would choose from the same list of candidates. So basically what happened was... Bremer kept fucking everything up, right, and pushing shit back, sure, and and then Bush started panicking about getting reelected, reelected, and well, so we, we then need they four more years of this leadership. So, so then they rushed an election, right, instead of doing it right, right, because he was. <sighs> this Good. was going to make things difficult in Sunni areas where the insurgency was strong. Not only would voting be a problem, but because of security, the Sunnis didn't have big parties anymore. The Ba'ath Party was gone. Now it was a little political parties vying for control. Many wanted Bremer in the White House. Um, 
wait. Many warned Bremer in the White House that having one electoral constituency would lead to disaster. It didn't matter. They wanted to get it done. The elections were a disaster. Sunni politicians boycotted, insurgents scared people away from voting. Sunnis who made up 20% of the population had 8% of the seats in the legislature, so the Shiites and Kurds had majorities in the government. Then the government sat back and watched as Shiite and Kurd militias grabbed up young Sunnis, tortured them, and killed them. Now Sunnis started attacking Shiites and Kurds instead of just Americans. Mixed religious neighborhoods in Baghdad, as they've been for decades, broke apart. Sunnis fled Shiite neighborhoods and vice versa. They were heading towards civil war. When it came time to write the Constitution, it became even worse. The Sunnis had no representation, so they hated the Constitution, and it was on. The Sunni insurgents formed Al-Qaeda in Iraq in 2004, which then slowly turned into the Islamic State through different events. The U.S. pulled out its troops in December 2011. IS recruited while the Shiites used oppression in the Sunni areas. Then war broke out in Syria between Sunnis and Shiites. Soldiers went to fight there, and there they learned how to fight, and slowly ISIS formed. The Islamic State in Iraq and Syria is what we have now. When Bremer left in June 2004, he said the CPA had set up Iraq perfectly. It was now on the way to being was he a, laughing? It was now on the way to being a democratic country with modern infrastructure and a free market. During an interview with a reporter, Bremer said Iraq had been, quote, fundamentally changed for the better. What was Bremer most proud of doing? Mm, I can't wait to hear what his prideful moment is. Lowering the tax rate? Sure. The liberalization of foreign investment laws. Right, that went right. And of course, the reduction of import duties. Yeah. The CPA to this day cannot account for $9 billion of the $12 billion in cash it was given. Yeah. Cash. Well, I mean, look. It, cash. Yeah, it, well, it's hard. That's the problem. That's why you need to put them on the debit system. Thank you. Former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich called Bremer, quote, the largest single disaster in American foreign policy in modern times. And that's coming from a huge disaster. A p- giant piece of shit. Yeah. On December 14th, 2004, Bremer was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Bush. At the Amer- Irony Awards, America's right? <laughs> Civil Award for, quote, especially mer- meritorious contributions to the security or national interests of the United States to world peace horticulture, or other significant public or private endeavors. He was also presented with the Department of Defense Award for Distinguished Public Service, and the Nixon Library offered him with the Victory of Freedom Award for demonstrating leadership and working towards peace and freedom. It's just, can't we just... Iraq still does not have full electricity like they did under Saddam Hussein. And now they have ISIS, who in July, after being allies with the Ba'ath Party, decided to go with debathification. And purged all the bathes. Word is things are not running as smoothly after the purge. <laughs> I just, I can't believe he gets awards. It's like, of all the shit. I mean, look. To like, to, to like, a, like, the nerve of awards. <laughs> so uh, the nerve of awards. It really, I mean, dude. <laughs> I mean, so it's worse than you thought, right? It it's just yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like it's like fast food. Like we all know it's terrible. But if you tore the factory floor, you're like, "Oh fuck." Yeah. I mean, it's really it's mind-boggling how much they just created this. 
Yeah, and how it could, like you, like we were saying, actually, like how it could have maybe been pulled if off. If the State Department had run things, then Iraq probably would be a yeah. million times better. A it million times better. better. Um, this doesn't mean we should have still. I highly recommend the book uh, Imperial Life in the Emerald City Inside Iraq's Green Zone by Rajiv Chandra Sekharan. Uh, it's fucking great. And it just goes over a lot of those fucking stories of the hiring shit, which is just... I mean... Yeah. Come on. Uh, yeah. When the, I mean, it's the hiring. It, it was all the hiring. It's the hiring. You, you, hire, you hire a fucking GM to run your football team, and he's a shithead. And, gonna, and remember... He's going to be surrounded by shitheads. These are the guys... That he's friends with. This is the president that was elected because he knew how to run a business, and he was going to have people surrounding him that knew how to make the right decisions. However... Uh, you're wrong because you said elected. Okay, fair. And he's never been elected. Totally fair. Oh, for two. Well, that one wasn't as funny as it might have been because Gareth was so upset. I mean, we had some fun. Go to the Patreon if you would like to donate to the dollop. Um, How many dollop people Patreon. do you think... How many Iraqi people do you think we've killed? Oh, God. It's, I mean, it's... Because our estimations is like six figures. Well, you know, at one point, the army uh, reclassified uh, um, Iraqi on Iraqi violence to if someone got shot from the front, it wasn't technically a shit. Right. No, it's true. It's like, like they did, the like the they, they did shit like that where they just reclassified killing. Right. So I, I have no idea. I mean, it's probably with 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 uh, disease and um, well, let alone, and everything else. Yeah. It's probably a million. I mean, yeah. or more. I, f- I would figure over a million. Yeah, that's what I would think. Yeah, well, yeah. Because if they're admitting to hundreds of thousands, I mean, they, well, we would admit to probably what do we admit to? Probably like two hundred thousand or something. Maybe yeah. But it's way over that. Now you throw in ISIS and everything else it led to. It's well, just, and like and the. I mean, the next generation. So many children are so fucked. And, 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 you know, we destabilized Syria We because we started yeah. oh, the yeah. war. And so then, you know, it's all. It's Dominoes, just a, baby. Yeah. Fun stuff. Merry um, Christmas. Cool. Um, we are uh, at The Dollop on Twitter. We're on Facebook, The Dollop. Uh, we have a read it, uh, Reddit, uh, subreddit, uh, The Dollop. Uh, check all that shit out. I think I'm going to start doing those stairs again. Hey, girl. Start. Get up there and punch that shit. Go so I can go up there and hypothetically in my brain just punch the fuck out of George W. Bush. Word. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great to just have like an hour to fight him? Oh, I'd love it. Like, cause I think he, I think you on pure, like when a mother can lift up a car because her child's underneath it. I yeah. feel like he would not be fighting me. He'd be. I would just, and he would know that there was. I mean, that there was a man who would die. Yeah. To just beat the shit oh, out. Of him. It'd be so great to beat him up. Ah. Uh, Punch him in that fucking grin. Right? We didn't say that, Secret Service. Punch, we want to hug him. I want to punch him. Hey there, people listening to The Dollop. Uh, this is Gareth. Yes, this same guy. I Listen, I have a new podcast called We're Here to Help that I'm doing with my friend Jake Johnson. It's basically a call and advice show where we don't say that we're professionals because we aren't, but we try to help people with problems that are important to them. You can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts, and it is out right now. So go listen to We're Here to Help with Jake and Gareth. We're here to help with Gareth and Jake. I don't remember how we did it, but either way, fun. Half Hour comes out Tuesday, August 22nd, and the episodes will be out every Tuesday and Friday. We're here to help.
Oh, hey there, everybody. It's Gareth, you know, from this uh, this podcast. Uh, listen, I've got some stand-up shows. I'm inviting the Garmy, the Gareth Army, to join me for. I will be in Fort Collins, Colorado, August 18th and August 19th. I will be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, August 24th through August 26th at Acme. I will be going to the UK in September. Please join me. I will be in Glasgow, September 13th, London, September 15th, Dublin, September 17th, and September 19th, Manchester, Birmingham, September 20th, Bristol, September 22nd, and Cardiff, September 24th. And then in November, I'll be in Australia. November 10th, almost sold out, I think. I'll be in Melbourne, Australia. Then I will be in Northbridge, Australia on November 15th. Adelaide, November 16th. Canberra, November 17th. Brisbane, November 18th. And then I will be in uh, Sydney on November 24th. Go to GarethReynolds.com for tickets. Garmy, let's get at it after it. Let's see you there.